Welcome. Thanks for tuning in to Grand Rounds, Connecticut Children's Office of Continuing Medical Education Pediatric Podcast. This podcast series will assist in developing new skill sets based on recent pediatric advances in a wide variety of specialties, identifying evidence-based data to support improved outcomes in pediatric healthcare delivery, increasing knowledge about research with implications for clinical practice. And now, here's Grand Rounds. Good morning, everyone. Uh, Welcome to Grand Rounds, and hope everyone is uh, staying safe, staying healthy as much as you can in the middle of the respiratory virus season and and getting ready for a beautiful season here at the end. The snow certainly made it very, very holiday Christmas-like for for all of us. Um, We have a a great uh, speaker today, Dr. Amy Hughes. And uh, again, she'll be, uh, we'll do the introduction of the introduction of my colleague in arms, uh, Dr. Chris Fink. We'll introduce Dr. Shum, who will introduce Dr. Hughes. This is the way we like to do it. And the Patrick and a pear tree. So we'll pass it on to Chris. Uh, you know, go ahead and introduce, and I'll be back with questions at the end. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Salazar, and welcome everybody to Pediatric Grand Rounds. I'd like to take this opportunity to welcome Dr. Shom, who's going to introduce Dr. Hughes. Dr. Shom um, has been a, a fantastic partner to me. He's been the, assist- the Associate Director of Clinical Affairs since 2016. Uh, for those of you that know Dr. Shom, you can understand why he's consistently been ranked uh, in Connecticut Magazine as one of the top docs. He is also currently Uh, a strong advocate for our children, serving as the AAP Connecticut chapter president. Um, For those of you that don't know, he trained in, uh, he did medical school in Georgetown, trained at the uh, Naval, the National Naval Medical Center, and then did his pediatric otolaryngology fellowship at Children's National. We are really lucky to have him here leading our division of ear, nose, and throat. Um, And without further ado, please, uh, Dr. Shom, introduce our guest speaker. Good morning, and uh, thanks so much uh, for the introduction, Chris. Uh, I have the pleasure of introducing my partner, Dr. Amy Hughes, for this morning's lecture. Uh, Dr. Hughes did her uh, undergraduate work at Boston College and then her medical school at Loyola, just outside of Chicago. We were uh, fortunate to have her as one of our own residents in otolaryngology for five years, and then she went up to Boston did her fellowship in pediatric otolaryngology. And then once again, we were very fortunate to have her uh, come back and join us as one of our attendings, along with her husband, Dr. Christopher Hughes, who some of you know, who runs our division of plastic surgery. Uh, Amy Hughes's subspecialty in pediatric otolaryngology is management of salivary gland disorders And this morning, she will speak on management of salaria in children. So please give a warm welcome to Dr. Amy Hughes. Good morning. Thank you, Dr. Salazar, Dr. Fink, and Dr. Shom for the introductions. And thank you for having me today to discuss salaria management in children. I have no financial disclosures. I will be discussing off-label use of botulinum toxin. The objectives of, of this presentation are to review how we assess these patients and evaluate them, and then to discuss some of the evidence-based interventions, discussing behavioral therapies, sensory motor therapies, oral appliances, and then really focusing on pharmacologic interventions, botulinum toxin injections, and surgical options. Starting with the definition, so drooling of saliva occurs due to limitations in a person's ability to control and swallow their oral secretions. It comes in two forms. There's anterior drooling, which is the more obvious form of drooling, So that's loss of saliva from the oral cavity. And that's fairly easy to diagnose in most individuals. And then there's posterior drooling, 
which is a little bit harder to harder to identify. Posterior drooling occurs when patients don't have good control and have trouble swallowing their secretions. And as a result, that saliva pools in the hypopharynx are down by the by the larynx and it can spill into the airways. And so that does have more medical implications as far as affecting our patients. And then of course patients can have a combination of anterior and posterior drooling. I just briefly want to touch upon non-pathologic drooling. So not all drooling is bad. It can be normal in children up to four to six years of age who are developmentally appropriate. Um, typically, this will present as anterior drooling. It would be unusual for a four to six-year-old who is developmentally appropriate to have posterior drooling. If there's no associated symptoms, often if I see these kids, I provide reassurance. I'll offer um, the idea of using sweatbands around the wrists and teaching the child how to be more aware of their saliva, how to wipe it themselves. Um, I will evaluate for any other symptoms such as mouth breathing or nasal obstruction to make sure that there is not a structural abnormality contributing, such as enlarged adenoids. But a lot of times these families are happy to hear that drooling is normal in four to six-year-olds or up to that age. And often it's just from being hyper-focused on, on an activity and forgetting to swallow. But today I'm going to really focus on pathologic drooling. And this is a big problem among our uh, neuro neurodevelopmentally difficult children. So it's up to 40% of children with cerebral palsy who are estimated to, to struggle with secretion control. It does have associated medical concerns. Um, anterior drooling can affect the skin around the mouth. You can have skin chafing. And then as we talked about, posterior drooling has a lot of medical implications as far as contributing to chronic lung disease, recurrent respiratory infections, hospitalizations. There are also psychosocial concerns. Uh, social embarrassment for the patients as well as their families, isolation from not wanting to go places. Um, it can also impact devices. So kids will accidentally have anterior drooling onto their iPads, onto their devices, and um, affect those. And so there are a lot of psychosocial concerns as well. So we'll start with how to assess these individuals. Obviously, it all starts with a good clinical, um, clinical uh, history and physical exam, discussing uh, in the history any medications that, on, that they are on. Antipsychotics are known to contribute to drooling. I've had a couple of individuals who are on antipsychotics. Uh, clozapine is, is a big one. And so if they're on medications that can be adjusted, then that's often a good place to start. Getting an idea of a history of aspiration or recurrent respiratory infections to define how significant their drooling is if it's not as obvious. Assessing for the presence or absence of esophageal reflux. Often it's hard to tell if the secretions are coming from above or if it's reflux coming up from below that's contributing to, um, to any uh, recurrent lung infections. So evaluating for that and making sure that treatment is optimized. Assessing the developmental age, this will help you decide what sort of interventions are an option for this patient, what they can participate in. Allergy screening for postnasal drip or other things that may be exacerbating their symptoms, um, oral facial concerns, seizures, often seizures can um, can worsen secretions, and patients will have more difficulty with secretion control surrounding, surrounding seizures. And so if they are having a lot of difficulty with frequent seizures or their seizure frequency is worsening, then this is another important uh, target. And then looking at their head control and positioning, if someone's in a wheelchair and their head is often positioned down, then that's obviously going to exacerbate anterior drooling, as will uh, a lot of oral stimulation. So evaluating for those things, maybe it's as simple as, uh, as getting a new chair or a new uh, positioning device. Looking at mouth closure, um, how their lip seal is, is there something with the dentition that's impacting the ability for the mouth to close? Um, can the patient swallow on demand? Are they able to wipe their own saliva? How involved 
in secretion control can the patient themselves be? And then looking at the motivations for, for, um, for treatment. So intrinsic motivation, how motivated is the child to be able to manage the saliva themselves? How is it impacting the family? More formal assessments are available. And so the, most of these are for anterior drooling. It is much harder to grade uh, posterior drooling. And so for anterior drooling, there are several scales listed here. The five-minute drooling quotient is really the only one of these listed that's an objective measurement. The rest are more subjective scales. Uh, with the drooling quotient, so over the course of five minutes, you'll measure every 15 seconds how often the patient has, uh, has drool or does not have drool, and then grade those events um, with the equation seen here. I have not personally uh, used the drooling quotient, but if you need a new uh, an objective measure, I think this is a good place to start. Um, I tend to favor, favor some of these subjective measures. So the drooling impact scale is the only scale that measures psychosocial impact. This scale is a little bit lengthy as well, and so sometimes it's also a little bit harder to translate for our patients. And so I tend to favor the teacher drooling scale, which is shown here. This is a simple one through five scale of no drooling to constant drooling. Um, it's easy and quick to do in the clinic. And it also helps me measure improvement over time. And so I can track how I'm doing uh, with progress as I try different interventions. And then, you know, really easy in the clinic, there's a very, you know, quick and dirty, less objective measure that is helpful. So just number of bibs per day, clothing changes per day, and this will give you a good idea um, and not take a lot of time to, uh, to evaluate. And then, as I mentioned, posterior drooling is a little bit harder. Sometimes it's harder to identify, harder to measure. It really is based on your clinical impression. So the presence of repeated pneumonias, repeated antibiotic use for respiratory infections, whether or not there's a frequent need for suctioning, chronic lung disease, hospitalization. So really you're gonna get an idea of how a child's doing based on their clinical history. There is a posterior drooling scale that came out of the Netherlands a couple of years ago, um, where you listen, you auscultate the neck and the lungs and you listen for gurgling breathing and how the patient is swallowing and managing that and scale it on zero to four. If I'm not sure, there are tools in the physical exam that can be used. This is a scope exam from a couple of weeks ago in a child who presented. Um, he had a neurodevelopmental delay and the family kept describing mucus that was collecting in his throat. And so it wasn't clear to me if it truly was mucus or if it was saliva or what was going on. And so flexible laryngoscopy seen here can be really helpful in determining what exactly uh, is happening and if it's mucus or if it is saliva. And so in the image all the way to the left, so you can see here, this is the larynx, uh, vocal cords, and then the airway, sorry, um, right through the red. And this is the initial view, view where everything is nice and clear. On that second image, you start to see secretions pooling over. Sorry, I'm not very adept with the pointer. Uh, pulling over from the hypopharynx, and they start to approach that laryngeal inlet. And then in that third image, it's very, it becomes very clear that the individual is aspirating, and so that saliva is going right through the vocal cords and into the airway. And so this allowed me to say that, yes, saliva does appear to be the problem, and I can um, decide what to do for treatment. So other options. So a salivagram is a nuclear medicine study. Um, this is from a patient I had years ago where it was tough to determine if it was reflux or if it was saliva that was contributing to his recurrent pneumonias. And so in this case, the salivogram is actually uh, quite helpful. So with a salivogram, you add tracer to the saliva, and then you watch for the tracer in, uh, going into the respiratory, into the respiratory tract. And, and so what you can see in this patient is uh, here at two minutes, you see some of that tracer going into the right main stem bronchi. 
And that persists really all the way until about 48 minutes um, where it's still present, and then by 50 minutes it clears. So in this patient, it was after the saliva gram, it became obvious that saliva uh, was contributing to the aspiration pneumonias. All right, so I'm going to move on to interventions. We'll start with the non-invasive interventions. And so these are really uh, for patients with anterior drooling. And so once you get into posterior drooling, it tend to be more aggressive. But for our patients with anterior drooling, and usually for uh, patients who are more able to participate in their drooling management, uh, this is where we'll start. I touched a little bit upon um, optimization of conditions uh, previously, but essentially it's doing those things where you're making sure that if they have reflux, they're on reflux medication. If they have too much mucus or allergic rhinitis, you're managing that. Um, you're addressing any positioning. Maybe it's getting, as I mentioned, a new wheelchair or um, a new way to support the head. If there are dental issues, so you know maybe there's a significant overbite and the individual can't close their, can't get a good lip seal, then it's making sure that any dental work is applied. And so it's really, you know, making sure you're evaluating the entire patient and getting rid of any factors that might be contributing that can be easily addressed. Oral motor, oral sensory strategies, these are uh, usually um, evaluated by speech therapists, occupational therapists, and it's looking at things like tongue thrusting, oral stimulation, trying to get the patient more aware of their of their mouth and of uh, lip closure, lip seal, and really addressing that. Behavioral interventions. Um, these are a little bit tough because you do need to have patient involvement. And so uh, the patient cannot has to have more of a mild delay to be able to participate. And usually it's uh, setting targets, like as, uh, teaching them to swallow more frequently or to wipe more frequently, and then a reward. And so while behavioral therapies can work very well, it does require a lot of upkeep and a lot of repetition to get a good result. And then lastly, oral appliances. So oral appliances are really used to try and uh, teach lip seal and to strengthen the, the oral cavity. These can only be used on kids over six years of age, and so you are limited um, by age. And then there's no real good data on the exact oral appliance, which is the best one to use. And so while the non-invasive interventions are there and might be great for some of um, the more mildly delayed patients, the evidence supporting them is really low-level evidence, and uh, most of the time we're kind of looking past the non-invasive interventions after optimization of conditions. And that brings me on to pharmacology. Uh, a lot of you may be familiar with some of these medications. The most commonly prescribed medications are glycopyrrolate, also known as Robinol or Cuposa, and scopolamine. Other options, I will say I'm seeing more and more sublingual atropine. Atrovent has also been uh, suggested in the past. But the anticholinergics in general tend to be our first-line uh, therapies. Glycopyrrolate, uh, you titrate the dosing. So usually I'll start at a, at a very low dose at 0.04 mg per kg, and then I titrate up to 0.1 mg per kilogram per, uh, uh, three times a day. And so this allows me to pick the dose that is effective but hopefully has the fewest side effects. Um, and so I like the, you know, the titration dosing, which has been uh, suggested by... Um, by a lot of uh, behavioral pediatricians. And then scopolamine is another good option. I tend to favor this in kids who are 11 or older and some of the older patients. And the reason is because you cannot titrate dosing. And so in the United States, you can only use a full patch. Some of our European colleagues do cut the patch, but this is not allowed um, here in the United States. And so it is more difficult because there's, there's some difficulties with side effects.
in general, the side effects from the medication. So there are some very predictable ones that I discuss with families, constipation being the most common one. You can often treat through this. Um, Miralax tends to work well or increasing laxatives. It can become excessively dry. If you can uh, titrate dosing to that, then that's helpful. Reasons to stop treatment, so escopolamine, eye dilatation, or if the dry mouth is too significant. And then there are some less predictable um, side effects that you can't really always counsel for. In a randomized controlled trial that came out of the UK, they compared scopolamine and glycopyrrolate. And what they found was that they're equally effective at drooling reduction, but in general, glycopyrrolate is tolerated much better. So at 12 weeks, 82% of patients continued on the glycopyrrolate, whereas almost a little, um, you know, a little bit more than half continued with the scopolamine. So um, it was almost 50-50. The most common reason for discontinuation of the scopolamine was hyperactivity. Um, and restlessness, and I've heard this among some of my patients as well. And so based on that, they uh, concluded that glycopyrrolate should be the first line managed pharmacologic intervention for drooling, and that's typically uh, what I will do. As I mentioned, there are some other medications. Um, atropine, I'm seeing more and more. Uh, this is the ophthalmic drops administered sublingually. The biggest uh, complaint I get from families is that it can be very difficult to administer. So often it's hard to get into the patient's mouth and under the tongue to make sure that they're getting those drops. That being said, there are a few side effects, so usually it's very well tolerated. Um, one of the most common side effects that, you know, that has shown up has been flushing. Um, and caregivers do report decreased saliva and improvement. So I think sublingual atropine, if they are not able to tolerate the glycopyrrolate or if they don't have improvement on it, then I think sublingual atropine does have a good, a good role in management. Atrovent is another one, inhaled atrovent. Um, there was a study on patients with Parkinson's and drooling, where they looked at the outcomes and they did see a subjective improvement. The objective measure was not significantly better, but I do think that although the jury's still out, probably not a lot of side effects and uh, maybe another option. All right, we're gonna move on to the intraglandular botulinum toxin injections and surgical interventions, which are the uh, most common interventions that, that I'm uh, performing. So who do I see in clinic? So most often, I'm considering Botox or surgery in patients with profuse, consistent anterior drooling. Um, it's drooling that's, you know, maybe not helped by the pharmacologic interventions or conservative measures. Um, maybe they're having side effects from those measures. Or patients with high, who are at high risk for low respiratory tract infections due to posterior drooling. Um, so with recurrent pneumonias, um, chronic lung disease. With botulinum toxin injections, I'm going to talk about how the Botox works, the different uh, types and the dosing schematics and then review some of the outcomes and techniques. For the surgical techniques, I'll talk about the most commonly performed procedures, the techniques of performing them, and then a review of the outcomes. All right, starting, starting with Botox. And again, this is off-label. The FDA has not yet approved it for um, sialuria management. So Botox works through inhibition of the acetylcholine uh, vesicle release into the synaptic cleft. And as a result, you get a chemical parasympathetic denervation of the salivary glands. Um, and so it decreases the amount of saliva that's being, that's being released. There are two different forms. So there's type A neurotoxin and type B neurotoxin. Um, I'm most familiar with onabotulinum toxin A or Botox. Um, that's the one that has most commonly uh, been available in the hospitals where I've been injecting. This is the dosing um, schematic that I use. So usually in kids less than 15 kilograms, I'll use about 15 units per gland. Um, between 15 and 25 kilos, about 20 units, and um, if they're over 25 kilos, about 25 units. 
in infants, it's suggested to use one to two units per, per kilo parkland, so much smaller dosing. Um, there have been some publications where they've tried to look at dosing. There's no final um, idea as to the optimal dose to use, but in one study, they looked at low dosing around 10. They looked at medium dosing, which is listed here around 20 to 25 units, and they looked at high dosing, 30 units or above. And what they found was low dosing typically did not have the same subjective improvement or objective improvement. Medium dosing worked well with fewer side effects than the high dosing. So high dosing and medium dosing had the same clinical outcomes or clinical improvement of drooling without the side effects in the medium dosing that they saw in the high dosing. And so that tends to be the best way to go. It is important to keep in mind there are two different types. And so um, if you're doing Botox A and you're not having any improvement, then maybe they don't respond. It's thought that maybe 10% of children don't respond to to Botox A. And so if you really want to try Botox and, you know, see if it's going to have an impact and this hasn't been working, one consideration is to try Botox B and see if there's a different response. You just have to be aware of the difference dosing. The dosing is very, very different between the two. There's also a small number of patients who may lose their response over time. So they've been responding um, really well, and then you do an injection and there's no improvement. The thought is maybe there's a formation of antibodies against the Botox and it makes it less effective. And so you could consider switching over. For a lot of these patients, we're coordinating between multiple specialties with orthopedic surgery being a big one for extremity injections. And so the maximum cumulative dose is about 400 units every 12 weeks. It's rare that I'm injecting more than 100 units um, into the salivary, into the four salivary glands at a time. And so this is usually not an issue um, from a salivary gland perspective. The maximum effect is typically seen between two and eight weeks. I tell most families that you're not going to see an impact before three days and usually um, around one week, you might start to see improvement. If there's no improvement by four weeks, I usually expect there not to be an improvement. And so I counsel them if there's no change by four weeks, I don't think you're going to see one. And then the length of improvement is about 22 weeks. Botox first came to light around for drooling, I should say, around 1997. Uh, what they found is that uh, individuals with botulism, about 93% of them complained of a dry mouth. And so um, and so it was clear that the, that the Botox toxin was impacting the, the uh, salivary glands. And then in patients who are undergoing Botox injections for cervical torticollis, one of the most common side effects or adverse events was dry mouth. And so uh, these authors took that information and in a population of um, individuals with ALS, they performed botulinum toxin injections into the parotid glands, initially targeting the parotid glands because they are the larger glands, thinking this is where they would get their impact. What we know today is that most likely targeting both the parotid and the submandibular glands is the best way to go and it's going to get the biggest impact. Um, Parotid-only injections have a moderate to good response on their own. About 50% of patients will improve. Injecting the submandibular glands only uh, about the same thing, about 50% of patients. And then the satisfactory response rate goes up if you target both the parotid and the submandibular glands with about 60% rate of caregiver satisfaction. I will say in the, in the infants or in kids who are really less than probably four years of age, I'll start with the submandibular glands only um, just to be more conservative and to prevent any adverse events. Um, if they don't respond, then I'll go ahead and add in the prod. And so the thought is that the submandibular glands make up about 70% of our resting saliva. And so I do think that there's more sense targeting those if you're going to go with just two glands rather than the parotids. So what are those adverse events? So there can be major ones. Dysphagia is the, is the biggest. And um, in patients who already have a level of oropharyngeal dysphagia, this can be really significant where they could require a temporary feeding tube, 
can contribute to aspiration pneumonia if they lose their ability to swallow properly. And so what happens is the Botox can diffuse outside of the glands into the surrounding muscles and really impact the way that these individuals are swallowing. And so that um, can have major implications. Most of the adverse events otherwise are, are on the minor side. Um, local bruising um, can, in, you know, to a lesser degree, result in more mild swallowing difficulty. Um, excessively dry mouth, thickened secretions. Thickened secretions, I would say, you know, I do hear frequently that there's a change in the consistency of the secretions, which is what we would expect. I have never seen facial weakness as a result of the Botox, and so I think this is very, very rare. Just to go, just to touch a little bit more on that oral motor dysfunction or dysphagia. So in 2017, a cohort study out of the Netherlands looked, looked at this adverse event, and they found that up to one-third of patients had a transient oral motor dysfunction. And so in my full oral feeders who have a baseline kind of mild oral pharyngeal dysphagia, I do spend quite a, quite a bit of time discussing this, this risk with them. Fortunately, the majority of time it's mild. Um, most often they're going to see it within a week, but it resolves by four weeks. But if it's if it's mild, then usually you can kind of work through it. But for those more severe cases, again, they may require a temporary feeding tube. And so, you know, this is a big deal. The way that, um, that I was trying to do the injections is with an ultrasound device. And so this is the injection position for the submandibular gland. And this is uh, for the parotid gland uh, with the Botox here, sorry, diffusing into the glands um, as evidenced here. I tend to favor doing this with individuals in the operating room under anesthesia. I think that um, it's easier when the when the individual is still. And I think that although they're, you know, in some ways kind of a glorified vaccination, I think it is, uh, it can be painful. You're pushing pretty decently with the ultrasound. And so I do think patients are more comfortable if they can uh, have a level of sedation. And I think that this improves my accuracy. If they're moving all around and they don't have a response, did I not get the right spot? You know, is it that they didn't respond? Sometimes it's hard to tell. Other than ultrasound, other ways to do the injections. So um, some, some individuals will use EMG. So they'll uh, use the EMG to make sure that they're not injecting into the muscle or they'll use anatomic landmarks. There is some increasing evidence that, you know, not surprisingly, the use of ultrasound does mitigate side effects or adverse events. And so in summary, Botox injections, the data is extremely varied as far as which glands to inject or what we're targeting, although there is evidence that if you're, if you're going to do Botox, then most likely you should inject the product and the submandibular glands to get a better result. There's no, you know, theoretically you can go on like this forever if the patients don't, if the patients and the families don't mind undergoing anesthesia every four to six months for the injections, or if they're able to tolerate in the clinic, there's no real end point. Um, and then the dosing, medium dose seems to be best. And then I think more and more individuals use the ultrasound. All right, so for the last category, we're going to talk about the different surgical interventions. The objectives of surgery are to redirect salivary flow through rerouting or to eliminate it altogether through ligation of the ducts or elimination of the salivary glands. There are four procedures that I'm going to discuss here. The first one is a little bit uh, different, the submandibular duct rerouting with or without sublingual gland excision. That is for kids with anterior drooling only, and we'll kind of, you know, go over why. But that's a little bit different than the other procedures because it's really a specific population who meets criteria for that procedure. Uh, the other procedure is duct ligation, either submandibular parotid or both. Submandibular duct ligation with sublingual gland excision, um, SFS is kind of the acronym for that. 
and then some mandibular gland excision with or without product duct ligation can be used on both anterior and posterior drooling patients. So starting with the rerouting. So with the rerouting, what we see here is the sublingual glands in the floor of mouth, and then this is the duct which is being isolated. And so you isolate the duct from the floor of mouth, and what you do is you create a submucosal tunnel in the side of the tongue, and you bring that duct through that area to the base of tongue. And so you're moving your, the papilla to your duct to the back of your mouth. And so in that process, you can imagine you're increasing the burden of saliva to your, to your oral pharynx. And so the patient has to be capable of swallowing that. They need to be able to handle that increase in, in saliva burden. And so patients with any form of oral pharyngeal dysphagia are not good candidates for this surgery. Um, so it's a very specific population. I did have one child, um, he was school age, with fairly severe autism that had really excessive anterior drooling, and he was a great candidate. We did this procedure and he did well. Other examples, um, I do have some patients with history of schizophrenia who can't come off the clozapine and have excessive drooling related to that. As long as they don't have any oropharyngeal dysphagia, then they also would be potential candidates for this surgery. But it is hard to find individuals who drool with a perfectly intact swallow. Um, as part of this procedure, you are removing these sublingual glands. And the reason is not uh, to decrease your saliva, but it's actually to decrease the risk of something called a ranula. A ranula occurs when you're working the floor of mouth and you block the drainage pathway for those um, minor, sub, minor salivary glands. And so what they found was that one of the most common complications of this surgery was, was ranula or cyst formation in the floor of mouth. And so by removing those sublingual glands, they decreased the complication rate pretty significantly. Um, it was initially 18% with the majority of those ranula, and I think it went down to around 10%. For the right patients, the surgery can be great. So they have a clinically significant improvement in drooling in 71 to 87% of patients. Technically, it's fairly straightforward, I guess, in the sense that, you know, you're working in the oral cavity, there's no external scars. I will say it can be tough to suture those ducts into the base of tongue and working that far back in the mouth. But but technically it is a fairly straightforward procedure. It's nice in the sense that families like that you're still maintaining their saliva, so it's considered more physiologic. And so I think a lot of individuals favor it for that reason. Other complications, uh, because you're operating the floor of mouth, you always wanna monitor these patients overnight for any floor of mouth swelling or hematoma formation. You're dissecting right along the lingual nerve, and so you're monitoring that to make sure that you don't give them any numbness to the tongue. Duct ligation is probably the best known procedure um, imaged here, so the parotid ducts up by that second molar, Stenson ducts, um, you're identifying that. The way I do this is a circumferential incision around the duct, but you can also make an incision just adjacent to it, um, dissect out that duct, and then ligate it, and then bury it within the mucosa. Same thing with the, with the submandibular papilla and the submandibular ducts in the floor of mouth. And that procedure is the one, as I said, it seems to be the most um, well-known it was first described around 1999, and in one of the first case reports of it, there were six patients and they reported 100% improvement. So they kind of came right out of the gate pretty heavy saying that this was you know, a great procedure. And what we know over time is that it's become less and less um, efficacious. And so the efficacy varies very widely, anywhere from 31 to 81%. And the biggest concern is with a high recurrence rate. This is thought to be a result of either the upregulation of those sublingual glands and minor salivary glands, 
or redevelopment of a salivary pathway. And so the caregiver satisfaction is only about 50% over time. And it's as soon as six months that you can see some evidence of recurrence. Um, there was a recent study comparing duct ligation to botulinum toxin injections, and I didn't see all that much of a difference by 32 weeks. And so that tells you that, you know, you're doing this surgery, parents think that they're going to get, you know, kind of this one, one procedure that's going to have a long-lasting impact, and I don't think we're seeing that all the time. With good counseling, it's still a viable option. Um, it's fairly minimally invasive, and there's a nice ease of performance with a low risk of complications. Keeping that in mind, we can do better, and so there is a way to adjust this procedure to make it more efficacious. Um, this uh, image probably looks familiar from a couple slides ago, but that's what the subtotal functional uh, silatinectomy uh, has been proposed to do. And so this is something that I've been doing for a while. Uh, a recent paper came out of Italy uh, discussing it further and, it, and comparing its results to for duct ligation. And essentially, you're doing that same duct ligation, and you're identifying the duct and working in the floor of mouth, but you're tying off the duct rather than rerouting it, and you're removing the sublingual glands. And this time, the reason for removing those sublingual glands is to help with, with the sialuria. And so to help prevent that upregulation up of the minor salivary glands after the duct ligation. My other thought is that um, by working a little bit more extensively in the floor of mouth, it probably does cause some scarring in that region. And I think it's probably harder for those ducts to, to reroute and recannulize because of that scarring. And so I think that this is a great, uh, a great procedure. In the comparison out of Italy, what they found was that with the, F the SFS, there was improvement across all measures. Um, and they measured the drooling frequency and severity, bib use. They looked at improvements in pneumonia and post-op medication use. And what they found was that with four duct ligation, there was really no change in pneumonia or post-op medication use, whereas with the S SFS, there was improvement um, in both of those things. And so, uh, again, four duct ligation, they had a 42% relapse or unsatisfactory result rate with an increase in sublingual gland activity being the, uh, being the reason or the suggested reason. So in the long term, this, this group outperformed the four duct ligation group with improved quality of life scores as well. And so I think that this is a great option for these patients. Um, so this procedure combined with some mandibular gland excision is really my, those are my two go-tos in individuals with um, anterior drooling who don't have an intact swallow or in posterior drooling. Some mandibular gland excision. So initially, the Wilkie procedure was introduced, I think, in 1967. So this one's been around for a while. Initially, they discussed some mandibular gland excision combined with prodded duct rerouting, but now we mostly combine it with prodded duct ligation. For the submandibular gland excision, there's two external incisions um, right underneath the chin. You dissect down and you remove the, the submandibular gland. Um, in that dissection, you might see the lingual nerve, uh, the hypoglossal nerve. And then afterwards, you close the incisions and you place a drain. So these patients are in the hospital for a minimum of one night um, with drain removal usually the next day. And as far as pain, I don't think it's all that uh, significantly different than the um, SFS where you're working in the mouth. Overall, uh, again, a good response rate of 63 to 85%. That response rate does go up with product if you include product duct ligation. And so in our more in our kind of more concerning patients with significant posterior drooling or chronic lung disease, often I'll combine the two. Um, and so this is a great option for posterior drooling. There's a nice definitiveness to it by removing the submandibular glands themselves.
And there's been a move in general towards earlier and more definitive surgical intervention in our patients who require ICU care for non-invasive ventilation in an attempt to avoid a tracheostomy. And so I do think that this has uh, a great role in that population. This is a meta-analysis that came out just comparing um, some of those procedures. And what it really highlights is that, again, I think I lost my pointer, but for duct ligation tends to have the lowest subjective success rate of around 64%. It's tough to compare the duct rerouting and the submandibular gland excision because it is two very different populations. But in general, they both have anywhere from 70 to, to high 80% uh, subjective success. So just, you know... To end, I'm going to talk about the sialuria care pathway. So this is, for those of you familiar with the American Academy of Cerebral Palsy and Developmental Medicine, um, this, they have been creating care pathways for, um, for their patient population, and they have one for sialuria as well. This is an international group of individuals. I've been lucky enough to be a part of this group looking at management of sialuria and, and creating a pathway. We published our first pathway in 2016, and it's been under construction for about a year now and hopefully will be updated within the next six months. Um, so coming soon, I think this is a great resource for care for these patients. It really goes through all the evidence-based medicine under behind each intervention. Thank you, Dr. Hughes. That was great. Uh, learned a, a ton. Thank you very much. And uh, we have uh, the audience. If you have questions, please go into the Q&A section and then write in your question. Uh, and I'll start while well, people are uh, thinking about questions. And it, it, give me a sense of how frequent, how frequently do you do you require surgery, uh, surgical intervention in these procedures? So often, it's really hard for patients when they're coming in to start with surgery. So it's very rare that that's where we're starting with, um, or that's where we're starting. And so often we'll kind of go through medications if they hadn't tried it, and then Botox. Um, they t families tend to get nervous once you start talking about surgery. Now, granted, they come in with an idea about Botox that it's just going to be quick and easy. It doesn't require anesthesia. It doesn't require revision. So there are some that will skip that step. But it's really the in a lot of the inpatients who have had the recurrent pneumonias and the frequent hospitalizations and the chronic lung disease that tend to go that route. And so I would say it is the least common step that we're taking. Probably, in my opinion, I think that probably more would benefit from it. I think that it's scary, but I think it is what's helpful. It's really hard to give you a percentage. I would say maybe, you know, 30% get there. I think it could be higher. Uh, there's a question now. Can you speak to using multiple medications for management? Uh, uh, for instance, adding atropine on top of Robinol. Yeah, I think that I think that can work well. I've seen that more and more. And so... Um, I think that you can use both of those, and I haven't seen an increased side effect. Fortunately, the sublingual atropine doesn't have those same side effects of constipation, urinary retention, um, behavior changes that we see with the anticholinergics. And so I think that I've seen some good success with the combination. And I will say with the Robinol as well, um, even though it's dose TID, it kind of works as you use it. And so I have some patients who seem to do okay during the day, and they really struggle at night when they're sleeping. And so I have a subset of patients who have been using that just at night before bed, and that does seem to be helpful and has fewer side effects. And so I think there's plenty of room to play around with medications. Great. Um, and one of the one of the in the audience, they're thanking you for using the pointer. I think you you get the award for the best use of the pointer <laughs> wow, during this presentation. <laughs> that was very good. It's not easy, and you did it really really well for for some of the images. So I appreciate it, um, Scott. I'm going to uh, open the mic for you, and uh, if you have comments or questions yourself. Scott? 
This has been a, a very long evolution in management of Sialuria. And I wonder, uh, Amy, if you can give us a little timeline of procedures that used to be done that have fell, uh, fallen out of favor because they really weren't that successful in the first place, but they were perhaps pushed by certain key individuals at children's hospitals. And that's what they did for 20 years. But then evidence-based studies showed that they really didn't make much of a difference. And have you changed your management over time? I think it's changed a lot over the years. I mean, many years ago, they were doing the transtampanic neurectomies. Um, where working in the middle ear space, um, you were uh, basically uh, dividing a nerve to try and decrease the amount of saliva that's produced. And so this has changed a lot. Um, even when I was a resident over 10 years ago now, um, <laughs> for duct ligation was really the procedure we learned the most about. And I think that has really fallen out of, out of favor. Um, and it's still, like I said, you know, I think it's still a viable option, but I think more and more we've kind of embraced some of what were traditionally considered the aggressive surgeries, like some mandibular gland excision. I think initially, you know, some individuals felt like that was maybe too aggressive in this patient population. But the last thing you want to do is operate on these kids repetitively. You know, I do think that there's something to be said about, you know, kind of trying to manage it the best you can with the using evidence-based medicine in one procedure. And then if they, they've, you know, unfortunately it's a tough population, so there are failures. Um, and so then if they fail, you know that you've tried that and you're not going back to the OR to try a, all sorts of combination of things. And so I do think um, that over time we've become more and more aggressive. They also used to do parotid duct rerouting. That was part of the initial uh, Wilkie procedure that I mentioned in 1967, where they would reroute the parotid duct, which is a little bit confusing because it already sits a little bit far back in the mouth. So I'm not sure the advantage of that, but I don't think anyone's doing that anymore. So there's been a lot of different surgeries proposed. And I think, you know, it's a testament to how tough this population is that you kind of keep trying different things to see if you can get a result, because sometimes it's very frustrating. Titrating atropine drops, do you increase dose first or frequency? So truthfully, um, most individuals come to me on the atropine, so it's probably the medication I prescribe the least, but most of the time I, I have not seen over two drops used um, sublingually, and so I don't know if they start at one and then go to two, um, but most often that's one of the medications that, that I see patients already on. Um, I'm much more familiar with dosing glycopyrrolate and scopolamine. Thanks. Uh, one of the questions would be uh, for the pediatricians that are in the audience is, uh, when should they refer to you? When, I mean, what is that? Uh, what is the timing? And uh, younger kids, older kids, give us a sense of. Yeah. So I think, you know, as I mentioned at the, at the start, there is non-pathologic drooling. So I think in your three, four-year-olds that they're having drooling, but they otherwise seem developmentally appropriate. They're breathing, you know, they're breathing well through their nose. They're not snoring. They don't seem to have an obstruction anywhere. I think reassurance goes a long way in those in those families. Um, I see a fair number of those kids, and the families are always happy that everything seems fine when they leave. Um, and so I think, you know, reassurance in our developmentally appropriate children is, you know, is really helpful. Um, the other thing I tell them is that most kinder, you know, most other children don't really recognize drooling as an issue until kindergarten age. And so fortunately in preschool, I don't think that, you know, the three or four-year-old peers care as much, of, you know, that there's drooling. And so it's really in the, you know, in the more complex patients, I think if individuals are comfortable starting the medication, then that's great. Um, 
that's a good place to start. Um, if they're not, then, you know, then I'm happy to see these kids. I know the pulmonologists and neurologists also, you know, will try these medications. And so there's a group of us. Um, and then if they've failed the medications or if there's recurrent respiratory infections, or if you're not sure and you think that they would benefit from a scope to evaluate whether or not it's saliva, they're aspirating or mucus or reflux, then um, I think that's a good time to refer. Great. And the, and the way to refer is to obviously through one call and, yes. and then they'll get to you. Exactly. Just to reemphasize that for our audience that is from all over the state and uh, actually nationally. All right, Scott, do you want to close and then we'll finish the grand rounds? Sure. I just want to say thank you so much to my partner, Amy Hughes, uh, for a great presentation. I think what's important for uh, people in the inpatient world is to recognize that it's not a one-size-fits-all and, and that it helps to have the initial evaluation. And oftentimes, parents aren't really sure what they want to do, and they have to think over a few months' time and then come back and see Dr. Hughes and rediscuss what the options are and figure out what's best for them. Uh, and so thanks so much again for a great presentation. Thank you, Scott. Uh, Dr. Oh, okay. Hughes, thank you for, thank for you an outstanding, outstanding grand rounds. Really, really appreciate your expertise. We're very lucky to have you here in our, in our midst. And for uh, those of you in the audience, next week, uh, we on Tuesday, we have congenital CMV infection, what you should know. It's a very common topic, and I think it'll be a great interest for all. Uh, we'll be uh, the guest speaker is Dr. Pablo Sanchez from Nationwide Children's, who is a, a pediatric infection disease, pediatric neonatologist, uh, world expert, really one of the preeminent uh, physicians in, in infectious disease. And so please join us on Tuesday. Uh, in the meantime, stay safe, be well, and we'll see you again in a week. Bye-bye. Take care. Thanks for listening to Grand Rounds. For the most recent updates, please consider subscribing or find us on our Facebook group, Connecticut Children's Continuing Medical Education, or online at connecticutchildrens.org slash podcast slash grand dash rounds.